0: You're listening to Citizens Church Podcast, a resource from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. There's a quote from a both famous and infamous boxer named Mike Tyson that's appropriate for today. He said this, he said, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the mouth. Amen? Something like an amen? Because in this passage, Peter had a plan. And he let Jesus in on the plan in John 13. If you remember back, John 13, says this. They're over the Passover dinner table. Jesus says, dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. Verse 36, Simon Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? Peter asks, I'm ready to die for you. Jesus' plan is whatever happens next, God. You've talked about betrayal. You've talked about dying. You've talked about being arrested. I am here for it to death. Nothing will separate us. That's my plan as the leader of the disciples. Jesus tells them the truth, not to mock him, but to love him. Jesus answered, verse 38, die for me. (laughs) I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. You're not even close to dying for me level plan. You're going to struggle with admitting you know me. Peter had this plan, and the punch in the mouth is when the reality of Jesus' suffering and death comes before Peter's eyes, and suddenly Peter's plan evaporates, and Jesus' prophecy sadly comes true as a rooster crows. And I want us to sit with the idea of what do you do with your sins and failures? Because we can look and say, oh, don't be like Peter. But I don't know if that's the point of the passage, really. I think the point of the passage is to see Peter's sin and failures and realize Peter's just like us. And as we look at this passage, both looking at Peter and Jesus, to learn what to do when we're found not faithful. When we fail. When our plans get punched in the mouth. And we don't know what to do. Look with me at verse 12. It's Jesus leaving the brook of Kidron in chains with these soldiers. Let's look what happens next. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient, it'd be a good idea that one man should die for the people. And it's late at night, they've arrested Jesus, they're dragging him to this false trial and they're gonna do it at Annas' house and then at Caiaphas' house. But it's confusing because both Annas and Caiaphas both go by the title high priest. Why? Because Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas was the high priest and he retains the title in their culture. Furthermore, they're related, which makes it even more confusing. But basically, these are the people who are in charge of the Pharisees, the ruling party that's made this plot to kill Jesus. So many of their servants are the ones who went and arrested Jesus. And here's what Caiaphas actually advised in John 11. Right after Jesus... (coughs) Ooh, sorry to give you a nervous cough. Let's all pull right back in. I'm healthy and well. <laughs> oh, look at you, perfect wife, always. Um, let's look at John 11. This is what Caiaphas advised in a private meeting with the Pharisees. Verse 45, right after Lazarus is risen from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did and believed him. You bring a guy back from the dead, it's going to stir up the news. Everyone is like, Lazarus was definitely dead. Jesus told him to come out of the grave. He definitely came out. Jesus' popularity skyrockets. He goes from rumor in the nation to reality. And the Pharisees have to face it. Verse 46, and some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest this year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should just die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans (coughs) to put him to death and Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. And this is important. I wanted to read this passage so you understood this kind of speaking better than he knows. He kind of prophesies, even though he's an enemy in this passage, that they start to try to arrest Jesus for this purpose. That, And you reading the Gospels and about the sham trial and all the Gospels. You see the Pharisees have all these different charges against Jesus. It's not just one charge. They say Jesus blasphemed God, so therefore we're gonna arrest him and therefore we're gonna kill him. But the charges are always changing. It's Jesus calling himself God, Jesus working on the Sabbath, Jesus claiming to forgive sins in their eyes, Jesus threatening the temple. But when it comes to Pontius Pilate, when Jesus is actually arrested and this will happen in the very next chapter, they bring him to Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor who cares nothing about Jewish law, but he's in charge. The Romans are occupying Israel and the, the thing that they charge Jesus will change. They'll tell Pontius Pilate, Jesus needs to be killed because he claims to be king, which makes him a rival to Rome. Jesus rivals your power, so you need to kill him. He should die. He's a dangerous and bad man. You should trust us. And the key moment lies here in verse 48 and 49. If you go to verse 48 for me, it says, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus is not crucified over a misunderstanding. Jesus is not crucified over a theological debate. Jesus is crucified by these leaders over power. They are worried if he keeps getting popular, all the Jewish people will follow Jesus and his disciples. And the Romans in charge will happily break up their power sharing agreement with the Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, and just make one with Jesus. And we know that's crazy talk, because if you're listening to Jesus' words, Jesus is running around saying things like John 3.16. For God so loved the world, they gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is trying to save the world, including the Pharisees. He is not here to do any political jockeying or to do a takeover of that kind. But deep down, the Pharisees are very worried that if Jesus keeps getting more popular, and we'll lose our place at the table. They'll have no need for us. And so from that discussion onward, where Caiaphas says, let's just kill him," Let's get rid of the one man to save the nation. And he speaks better and he knows as this death will result in the salvation of all peoples everywhere, gathering the children from all places. But it's important for us to see that the Pharisees aren't making a misunderstanding. It boils down to the Pharisees' love of power instead of God. And that's the sin of idolatry. For us, idolatry is when we love, obey, or worship anything above Jesus. Doesn't matter what it is, but in this case, it was power. It was losing their seat at the table. And the Pharisees we see are very religious people, but they are far from a faithful people. They are not faithful lovers of God who are misguided or people who just love rules when we throw around, hey, don't be a Pharisee. It's not just people who got mixed up in love rules. These are people who are very religious, but just plain evil. You can be very religious and very evil at the same time. And we need to understand that. Being draped in religious language, doing all the right external things, does not make you a Jesus follower. It is a matter of the heart. And we do have a religion. Christianity is a religion. But at the core of our religion, the through line is a love-based relationship with God. Namely, that he loves us and our response is to love him back. If you don't have the loving relationship with God, then the religion is false. We are a part of a religion. I, I don't like it when we say, hey, it's a relationship, not religion. Wait, this is a religion. <laughs> but at the heart of it is a relationship with God. And that's sorely missing between the Pharisees and God himself, or they would have recognized Jesus as the father's son. But look at Jesus' faithfulness under fire. They arrive at this house in the middle of the night for a sham trial. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple. Where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. So why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I've said to them. They know what I said. And Jesus, right here, is pointing out the shamness of all this. He's already saying Are you really asking for me to provide evidence for my own arrest? You don't even have the evidence. You don't even know what I've said. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to bend the truth here. I'm not trying to change the story. You don't even know what you're charging me for. And you're charging me for murder. And you don't even know the charges. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hands saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if what I've said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I've said is right? Why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And we see a Jesus who is faithful to God under the worst of circumstances. He's bound. He's in the middle of the night surrounded by people accusing him. And instead of bending to their will in any way, he keeps asking them questions that show them the ludicrousness of what they're doing and that they have arrested God. Just like with the guards, he made them say, who are you looking for? And he had to tell them, I am he, I am God. You need to know what you're doing. The same at this trial in a house, he's turning the mirror around and go, so what are you charging, myth? Helping people, healing them, teaching the word of God? Pick what exactly are we doing here tonight, guys? Because no one's getting off the hook, just saying, oh, I got caught up in things. Now they lead him off to Caiaphas's house, but there's a twinness to the story here. And the writer of the Gospel of John is doing this intentionally, that there's kind of a twin path through the passage. Because as Jesus is led to this first house, Peter has followed Jesus. Peter's outside of Annas' house, and let's see how Peter has failed against the pressure. Verse 17. <coughs> the servant girl at the door said to Peter, "You also are not one of his. You also are not one of his disciples, are you?" He said, "I am not." Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also is with them, standing and warming himself. And notice the parallelness. Peter has blended in to be just another one of the accusers or bystanders. Jesus is bound, being hit, and Peter's worried about staying warm this night. When a servant girl, probably a young girl, asks him if he's one of Jesus' guys, he quickly denies being his disciple. Jesus, Peter's boldness at the dinner table has already evaporated and we're still a long way from the actual cross, but it gets worse. Verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was still standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Remember last week, poor Malchus got his ear cut off in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is getting arrested. Peter grabs a sword, hacks a guy's ear off. This guy says he was there in the garden and a relative of the guy who lost the ear. If I'm that guy, I'm going to remember the guy who cut my cousin's ear off. Peter, you're boxed in here real tight. Because all this happened like an hour ago. But what's Peter do? Verse 27, he has a chance to come clean. Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Jesus's prediction becomes painfully true. Anyone who reads it realizes like, whoa, that's like a five chapter callback. But it snaps into focus of what's been going on that Jesus is being proven faithful and Peter is being proved faithless. And this section is meant for us to compare and contrast Jesus and Peter. Not so we'd beat up on Peter, but rather we'd see Jesus as the savior, both God and man. And it would become ever clearer just how special Jesus is, but it would become ever clearer that Peter is just like us. Peter's just a man. He's just a person. He's a sinner with real flaws. And I want to look at this chart to see the parallelism that's been running this whole time through the gospel of John, this whole section. Jesus' faithfulness is the God-man. Jesus keeps his promise on dying and rising. He gave him over and over and over again, said, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be bound. I'm going to die and tells them and goes through with it. Peter's failure as a man, Peter over-promises, under-delivers. I'm following Jesus, and gets roostered. That's my shorthand. Jesus is in command and control at his arrest. Remember, he hears him coming up the the path, and walks out to him and starts asking all the arresting party questions. He's zero percent scared and in complete control. His soldiers fall to the ground at a mere word of his mouth. Peter panics and slices off the ear of the servant. Peter picks the littlest guy in the whole party and goes for him, not the soldiers. Jesus asks challenging questions of the high priest, making him reflect on what he's really doing here. Peter lies to the challenges of a little girl among others. Jesus is faithful always. And Peter, he's a mixture of failures and faithfulness, just like us. No better, no worse. And here's the key today, church. Did Jesus quit the process of going to the cross when Peter sinned? Did Jesus throw off his captors, evade arrest, stop the process of salvation when he heard the rooster crow? Did Jesus get frustrated and throw a temper tantrum inside Annas' house and be like, oh, I'm so frustrated about this other thing, guys. Hold off on the questioning. I need to have a pity party because Peter's not living up to what he said he would do. Is Jesus' love for you, for me, for all of us? His endurance to suffer for our sins. Is it conditional upon your good behavior? No. Because our failures do not nullify Jesus's faithfulness. We're going to say it again, church. Our failures do not nullify Jesus's faithfulness. You cannot outsin sin Jesus's saving. Amen. His salvation is gigantic and it is for you. And the gospel simply isn't about you. We are saved. Peter is saved because of Jesus's faithfulness, not our own. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not faithful people, but sinners like Peter, you, and I. And Jesus's plan to save is greater than Peter's or anyone else's plan, no matter how devious. It is Jesus who does the saving, not our greatness or our faithfulness. The power of the gospel is simply Jesus and not us. See, there's two ways we usually misunderstand the gospel. And you could pick either one out of the story if you wish. But the gospel isn't guilt. The gospel isn't guilt that Jesus did a lot. He took the punches. He got tortured on the cross and he died. So now we better get it together, guys. That's the gospel of guilt. Jesus did a lot. So I better get in line and do my part. That's no gospel. That's Jesus as a good example and a shaming parent of which Jesus is neither. The other gospel, you could say, nor is Jesus' gospel about our greatness. The gospel isn't, Lord, I've been so faithful. Now I deserve thee. They're equal and opposite heirs, And the heirs both focus on us and not Jesus. One is about how much I should do for God. And the other one is look at how much I've done for you, God. The gospel is look at what Jesus has done for sinners. Look at what the perfect man did. Even in the face of no disciples following him. Jesus continues on to the cross for you and me and everyone else. Not on the merits of what they do, but on the the merits of what he wished to do. The heart of the gospel is about Jesus. Jesus' willingness to obey God the Father to his glory and to love us at the great cost of his own innocent life being shed. He loved us until death and past. And when he rose from the dead, he rose conquering sin, death, and the devil himself that he can give salvation freely to Peters like me and Peters like you they come up way short and our plans get punched in the mouth by the simplest things our best plans for obedience get sidetracked 2 minutes into our morning let this sink in church you cannot outsin jesus's saving you cannot outsin jesus's saving period our failures do not nullify Jesus's faithfulness. And I got two big applications for us, church. You might say, wow, that's a lot of story. And man, Jesus is good. That would be good enough applications to learn the story and learn the greatness of Jesus. But I want to give us two particular ones for our church. And the first one is this. Have you believed this gospel that's all about Jesus and not about you? Most gospels you hear are a lot about Jesus and some about you. But the gospel of the Bible is a gospel that's all about Jesus and none about us, because that's the gospel of grace that can actually save you from beginning to end. If I have a part in my salvation, I'm going to mess it up. But if God can save me from beginning to end on his works, not mine, then Jesus's arrest, torture, dying, and ultimate resurrection can actually save me. Our only input into the gospel equation is our sin, and we are saved by believing Jesus for our salvation. To truly believe the gospel of grace is to know that your salvation is 100% Jesus' faithfulness and 0% Our works. Whether you feel like your works are mostly failures or they're mostly triumphs and you're awesome, neither counts for salvation with God. If you feel like you deserve Jesus or God owes you something, you are missing the gospel. If you feel like you deserve Jesus or God owes you something, anything, You are missing the gospel, whether that's kids or a marriage or a great job or respect or, 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 or a new life. Jesus owes you nothing. If you feel like your sins are too big or too shameful for Jesus's forgiveness, you are also missing the gospel. We don't earn or deserve anything from Jesus, and there is no limits to what he can save. The gospel is about Jesus's faithfulness, not ours. And that's the gospel of grace. And that's why it's good news. And that's why we gather and worship this Jesus. Jesus' grace is like a Mike Mike Tyson knockout. We just get punched by the grace of God. Our belief is hitting the mat. When you're like, well, what about the work of us believing? That's not work. That's being impacted by God. The second application is this. Please believe the gospel of grace. If you haven't before, if this sounds new to you, let's talk today or talk with someone you know here and we can have you ready to take communion and become a believer even now, even today. Second application is this. Your growth in the Christian life continues in much the same way. It is not we start by grace and we finish in some other way. It's grace all the way down, fam. And a lot of us have believed that lie, like I'm saved by grace and now I gotta like let's go. And man, the Lord is not opposed to our effort. Some of us need to put in more effort, but he is opposed to our earning. It is grace motivating us to change. It's grace transforming us from the inside out. And here's how you know, as you grow in following Jesus, you become more aware of your sins and failures, not less aware As you grow in Christ, as you grow in grace, you become more aware of how you're not like Christ, not less aware. Now, hopefully behaviors are changing. And a lot of times we think of sins as like the surface sins, Uh, drinking too much, lying, not paying taxes, promiscuous sexuality, things like that. We're like, okay, we'll try our best to get rid of all this stuff, But what God really wants to do, yes, he wants to work through those things, but he actually wants to get down to your heart that's a little harder to see. The place that would motivate someone to kill God. Idolatry. Just like the Pharisees. On the surface, they obeyed every single rule in the Old Testament to the best of their ability. They did. But their hearts, as to quote Jesus, were like rotten graves white on the top, dead inside, as he would say in the book of Luke. For us following Christ, we want to invite God and invite others to say, help me look inside the cup, the grave, my heart. And here at Citizens, I talk about every four weeks or so about our heart as a garden, because it's a good way to think that your heart is varied, complex, it's unique, it's your story, it's your life. And God is continually replowing the garden and planting new things where death once reigned. And the work that God wants to do with you is to get into that garden and say, I want to talk about all the things we love and worship more than me. And I want to replace them with the good news of my grace. And I want to see new fruit come out of there. And so, idolatry, loving things more than God, could look like this it could look like pride. Could look like just thinking you're better than others. Could look like people pleasing. Could look like a lust of the heart. It could look like loving a thing like power with the Pharisees or money or relationships or status or even tricky things like seeking security and comfort and preferences and control over obeying the clear will of God or trusting God for those things in our life. That's the deeper work of transformation. So for the second application, church, I'm going to make a gigantic ask of you, especially if you're a member here, that you would have the boldness to talk to your spouse, your roommate, or the person you're closest with at Citizens, and just ask, hey, friend, I have a hard time seeing my eyebrows. I know they're there, but I don't see them unless I look in the mirror. And sometimes I don't look in the mirror so good. So could you help me see where I'm missing the mark? Could you help see into my heart a little bit and gently, but honestly, and that you would pray for me in this too. Just give me one thing. Don't give me six things. There's like like 16 things. Let's just go with one. Help me see a little closer because to be honest, guys, have you ever heard of the ugly couch thing? You kind of live in your house and you got an ugly couch. You get used to it. It's part of your house. It's great. You lay on the couch, eat on the couch. Couch is fine. But then you have a friend come over for the first time and they walk in your living room. Like they're like, oh, nice place. And that, oh my gosh, (laughs) is there something living in that? We don't notice the ugly couches in our life. We just go, oh, they're just like that. But sometimes they meet new people and you're like, whoa, wow. They can really dominate things. Oh, wow. They, they kind of gossip all the time. Oh, wow, they're they're pretty stingy. Oh, wow, they're, they don't show love very easily. Wow, gentleness isn't even in the atmosphere here. I'm just saying, church, let's be a people that does the work to cultivate a community that belongs to Jesus. And to be that community, we'll have to cultivate the garden together. And The goal isn't to beat ourselves up. The goal isn't to ruin our relationships, instead, wounds from a friend are love and should draw us closer. And the goal isn't to wound at all, but to gently and honestly say, Hey, Elena, could you help me see the garden a little clearer? Where are some dead spots? Just one dead spot that we could plant something new. You've been listening to the Citizens Church podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizen's Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.